Welcome back to America's leading higher education podcast, The EdUp Experience, where we make education your business. Hosts Dr. Joe Salustio, Elizabeth Liba, and producer Elvin Freites bring you the brightest and most influential minds in higher education today. We explore innovations, ideas, and issues in higher education and beyond, and hopefully have a little fun along the way. Now let's get to it. Welcome back, everybody. This is the EdUp Experience, where we make education your business, interviewing the brightest and most influential minds in higher education and beyond. My name is Dr. Joe Salustio. Glad to be with you again. Always with me, the better half of this duo, Liz Liba. Liz, how are you doing today? I'm glad you're calling me your better half. You're you're finally learning what you need to do to keep me Well, happy. it's only taken me 100 episodes, Liz, but... <laughs> I appreciate that. Cause the phenom, that's... ladies and gentlemen. Liz, <laughs> yeah, right. No, with, not without you. So, uh-huh. there. Well, well, people say we make a good team, so we're just going to go with that. Of course. Let's do it. Well, we have another amazing guest for, for you amazing EdUp listeners today. On the line right now, we have Luis Sanchez. He is president of Oxnard College, and he is ready to talk. Luis, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Uh, pleasure to meet both you and Liz, Joe, and I look forward to our conversation. Well, no, thank you for making time to be here with us today. Needless to say, you are a busy man, along with every college president and administrator in the country right now, dealing with uh, all of the uh, uh, coronavirus fallouts that we have in, in movement within higher ed and in California, no less, which uh, I am also in California, Luis, and it seems to me that we just can't get our hands behind this and it continues to uh, continues to affect our state in ways, uh, in greater ways than other states. How, how are you guys at Oxnard still dealing with uh, coronavirus and all of its consequences? Well, it's, um, it's, it's a strange world, of course, that we're experiencing and, and none, of us were, uh, none of us were adequately prepared for this pandemic or how to respond to it. It was not one of the subjects that was taught in any of my education. So all of us have been learning on the fly uh, the, the, the worst part, of course, is the, the damage to our students. Um, and I think we're only seeing the tip of the iceberg in terms of what that damage is. So I'm at Oxnard College. I, um, I had been at Moorpark College as president for, the, uh, for, the prior, for, prior, uh, for four years until April of 2019. And then there was a sudden um, opportunity at Oxnard College and I'd always had a heart for the students at Oxnard College. Um, typically the sons and daughters of uh, first-generation farm workers, um, and uh, I sort of resonate with their experience. So, uh, but they've been hit the hardest of the three uh, colleges in our district, uh, Ventura College and Moorpark College are our sister colleges, uh, and our students uh, have been hit the hardest. They're the front line that have been affected by the pandemic as well as by the concomitant um, you know, economic abyss that we've been plunged into. So we're doing the best we can, and I'm happy to share whatever experience I can share here, um, but uh, it's, not, uh, it's not a lot of fun for our students, and we're trying to figure out constantly how to do better. So, so uh, let me dig into that with you a little bit. You say hit the hardest. My mind immediately goes to financial. I'm assuming it's probably deeper 
and more significant than just the financial part of it. Can you talk about what that means hit the hardest and, and how you've or what you've seen uh, in terms of the challenges uh, that students are facing? You bet. So, so one small indicator of how hard we've been hit is that our enrollments are down a little bit more than 10% from the same time last year. Um, and, uh, but, that, but that only sort of describes a, a statistical um, uh, indicator. The, the real life consequences, uh, if you can sort of imagine what it's like to be a first generation college student from maybe a family that, that's not a native English speaking family, um, immigrants to the US, working in the agricultural fields and Oxnard College is surrounded by agriculture. It's a place where Cesar Chavez was um, uh, spent part of his career. Um, and uh, suddenly all of your classes are shifted online. Possibly you've been you've had a direct personal uh, exposure to the uh, to COVID because you've been working in the agricultural field or in a service environment, um, and you probably don't have the strong either familial uh, support system or economic support systems to be able to pivot easily. So here you are at home. Uh, hopefully you have a quiet place to work out of. Hopefully you have a computer to work with and hopefully you have internet access, but none of those are given before you even get to the economic consequences of worrying about how you're gonna feed your family, pay your rent, all of that. Uh, yeah, that's a lot, Liz. Uh, um, and I know Elizabeth, you're pretty passionate about access. And I think there's always this big assumption that, uh, that the student who's moving online is sitting down with a top-of-the-line computer with internet access that reaches and wraps around their house, assuming that they're living in a, in a house. Um, and those are pretty poor assumptions for us to make in higher ed right now. I agree. I definitely have a, a strong place in my heart for the first-generation immigrant student. My, I was an immigrant, or am, <laughs> have assimilated to America, but my parents were immigrants and it was difficult. And a lot of the time, I, the, the part about not having that strong familiar support and pursuing college is really salient because I think, like you said, there is the assumption that, oh, you're just gonna jump online and go home. It's gonna be a great environment there and you're just gonna continue online. And that's definitely not necessarily the case. So let's, let's drill down a little bit. Um, I, I went on the website and I saw immediately the first thing I saw was feeling down, feeling depressed, free mental health services. And I was like, wow, awesome. That's exactly. So I, I could already tell you guys have a good handle on some of the uh, issues that are coming into play here, coming into play here with COVID. Can you tell us and share with us a little bit about some of the support services whether technology support, whether mental health services, whether uh, scaffolding for uh, academic support. What are the things that you're having to do? And, and is there anything that surprised you or things that you didn't expect or, or things that are, are going well? Maybe some tips and strategies for other schools, particularly those that serve the, that very special and oftentimes more um, needy, uh, and when I say needy, uh, definitely not in a negative sense, just needs more support in terms of the first generation student and students that might not have that uh, support system at home. 
Well, I'll, I'll start with uh, what's surprising, and, and this probably should not be surprising, but the, but the depth uh, of this statistic that I'm going to cite uh, was stunning to me. I read in the Chronicle of Higher Ed recently, uh, I don't remember where the study came from, but it was a fairly credible source, and it indicated that based on their survey, 25% of American youth between the ages of 18 and 24 which is of course our, our primary uh, college student, um, had contemplated suicide within the last 30 days. So let me just repeat oh, wow. that. 25% of American youth between the ages of 18 and 24 have contemplated suicide within the last 30 days. Had you just said a quarter of American youth had com contemplated suicide, that would be stunning enough. But within the last 30 days tells us uh, something very poignant. I know, you know, I'm 66 years old. I've, I've had a lot of life experience behind me. I've, uh, I'm in a fairly responsible position. Um, and, and despite the fact that I'm in life and financially pretty secure, um, I have some anxiety within me. I don't know anybody that doesn't have some anxiety within them, mm -hmm. but then extrapolate to a, a young college student maybe they're first generation, uh, maybe they are on the lowest rung of the socioeconomic ladder, uh, and they're surrounded, of course, by all of the hazards that are making the rest of us anxious. It's not just the pandemic, it's, it, it's not just the economic um, abyss, uh, it's also the, the politically fraught environment that, we, that we're in. Yes. Uh, all of those things have just exacerbated uh, what I think is kind of an anxious period of time anyway as students go through college. Uh, particularly first-generation college students who don't know a lot of the things that 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 we that are second nature to us now, uh, and that gives you some sense of the amount of anxiety that we experience anecdotally. But that uh, statistic, I think, puts it into a very fine uh, context. So what we've done is expanded, of course, our access to mental health services, and and despite our expansion, there's there's just simply not enough mental health support. To, to feed that um, statistic. Uh, we have uh, pivoted to provide as much online support to our students, uh, counseling and tutorial support. Um, we have provided students using some of our CARES funding, we've provided students with additional financial aid with laptops if they didn't have a laptop, uh, tried to help them uh, secure uh, internet access, provide a space on our campus within the library where they can actually come and not only get some tutorial support, but also just simply be able to, to have reliable internet access uh, to do their schoolwork in. So we've done all the things that we can think of uh, to help support our students during this period of time. But, but it's a little bit like asking the question, how do you boil the ocean? Um, it's, yeah. it's, it's not easy to do. Are students also dealing with like the financial, uh, are there support systems or mechanisms that might be available? Does the CARES, uh, funding support where students have like the housing insecurity or food insecurity is that something that you've seen or or has that been something that's come up on campus at all we see a lot of it at Oxnard College a matter of fact we have uh, regular food drives where we, we have a food pantry we have um, distribution uh, of food um, uh, on a regular basis to students because there's a high level of economic insecurity matter of fact one of the lessons that we've learned one of the takeaways is providing financial aid, which we had intended to go to help uh, secure um, Wi-Fi uh, access, sometimes gets diverted to the next meal or to the rent payment that's behind 
and um, you know you, we can understand that completely. Um, but that means that we have to pay better attention to how to actually get you know Wi-Fi service or a laptop into the hands of a student who, if you just give the student a check, has a very tough decision to make about how to allocate that check. I always found that very fascinating. It seems as though sometimes there's a disconnect between you have a student that, like you said, we have life experience and, and we know how to budget and we've been doing it for some time. So we have a little bit more discernment in terms of how to allocate our funds and our money when we get our paycheck. But then you you have an 18 or a 19 year old. I mean, my daughter's 21 and, and sometimes you they don't have the life experience to be able to determine like how to budget these funds and then you say okay well here take ten thousand dollars and just go figure it out and I, I always wonder how we expect expect those decisions to be made um especially when it's between maybe like you said maybe a car payment and a book or uh you know, a meal and having them figure out if they can pay their internet so that they can get online to, to their classes. So it's definitely a, a little bit mind boggling. Uh, Absolutely. And we, and we offer uh, financial literacy workshops, but, but, mm. uh, and it's why, I mean, I don't know of anybody, uh, and I'm sure there are some people that, that are the exception, but I don't know of anybody that didn't go through learning the ropes financially, charging too much on their credit cards, mm -hmm. uh, uh, overdrawing their bank account, mm -hmm. uh, experiences that a lot of people have. But, but in this case, those experiences are magnified, you know, a hundredfold by students who are just beset by the, by the depths of this pandemic and, and the economic consequences of it. Absolutely. So when you, when you say your enrollment's down 10%, are you talking um, overall population? Are you saying new and incoming enrollment? Uh, can you can you quantify that for me just a tad, and I'll have follow up. It's overall population. I, I don't know this empirically, but I but I think it's likely that it is primarily affecting our um, the the traditional college student, a first time college student, uh, I, whether it's in their first year or their second year, but. Uh, uh, probably with a little bit less savage effect upon our returning students that are uh, a little older, although I, they're, they're hit as well. So do you, th do you think it's related to, you know, risk tolerance right now? You think there's a lot of students looking at a gap year because of COVID? We hear the gap year thing thrown around a little bit. Um, it, 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 I think there are some students that are looking at a gap year. I think there are just some students that are deciding not to go to school, maybe working or doing something else for a year until this calms down, hopefully. What are you guys thinking, seeing, what's happening to you all there? Well, I, 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 a little bit of all of that. Uh, I, I think a lot of it, uh, some of it clearly has to do with uh, the, all of the practical consequences of the health crisis and the economic crisis. If you have to worry about, about where your next meal is coming from or how are you gonna pay that, that rent check, then school becomes somewhat of a luxury. It's a, it's a long-term investment, but at the moment, it'll feel like a luxury. Um, but it's also uh, the, the pedagogical fallout from students that are suddenly cast into an online uh, world. Um, and I've taken a few online classes myself. I've taught in somewhat of a hybrid environment, uh, but I, I didn't really enjoy taking online classes the technology and the pedagogy has gotten better. But for, for a first-generation college student, and, and again, maybe English is not their native language, 
it's, it's really a tough new environment to figure out while you're still trying to navigate just the college experience. I was looking recently at what it takes to enroll in our college and something that seems so simple and it's what's required to get your first uh, foot into, uh, the, into higher education. It, it's really a complex process. And so we're looking at how to take how to, how to establish more dual enrollment classes in the high schools surrounding us so that students can navigate that process while they're still in their senior year of high school. You know, that's a really interesting point that you bring up. And I think, you know, kudos to you for taking a look at it because I think a lot of schools, the when you're thinking about our enrollments down or you're trying to drive efficiency, you've got to go back to your basic process and yes. take a look and see how hard it is. Yes. Application processes can be very involved and you think they're easy and they're just not to a student who's looking from the outside in. From That's the inside right. out, it seems like, oh, how hard is it to, to apply? Can you do it on a cell phone? Can you get the documents you need and take pictures and send them over? Do they have to be mailed? Well, there's all sorts of things to look at to create uh, an easier process to your point. That, that's right. And, and in some ways, although the, the guided pathways movement is a really healthy movement and we embrace it, sure. but it also asks students to identify their, their, the career field that they're interested in. Uh, and a lot of students in their high school, uh, senior, junior and senior years, they don't know what that's going to be. So they really require some additional um, uh, support exploration they don't you know a lot of a lot of kids that age have no idea what they're looking at or, or want to do that's right it, it's very hard to identify that even in a graduate student sometime that's sometimes it's looking for an mba versus a, a organizational leadership degree i mean there's there's still definition that has to take place uh, at well, a level. My, guess, my guess is that the three of us did not picture what it is that we're doing today when we were seniors in high school. And that's probably true for 90% of your audience. I sure didn't, Liz. I don't know about you. Oh, no, I had no idea what I wanted to do. And what I wanted to do, I thought I wanted to do, I did something totally different for a long time before I even stepped foot into a newsroom, which is what I went to school for, journalism. I was probably in my career field for like 10 years before I even professionally went into a newsroom. So well, I was I, first, what, I was what about first, you? I was a first generation college student. My parents immigrated from Mexico with an eighth grade education. And, and we were fortunate because they were great parents. And I think that's the very first lottery in life. Do you have parents who love you and who will provide you with a roof over your head? And we got that, but, but they didn't know how to, and they encouraged us to go to college, but they didn't know how uh, experientially how to advise us in terms of choosing a college, choosing a major, choosing a career. So, so we made, my two siblings and I, we made lots of mistakes along the way. And I love nothing more than talking to uh, incoming uh, students and sharing with them the mistakes that I made so they don't look at me at this stage of life and feel that this, the pathway is inaccessible to them. That's a good point. And, and my, my story, this is the closest I ever got to my dream right now, or my, what I thought I was going to be in high school, which was a sports caster on ESPN. There you go. Uh, so, so not only did I have to wait this long to put a microphone in front of my face, but I'm doing educational play-by-play -play instead of, uh, instead of uh, <laughs> basketball play-by-play. -play. So I guess it's close, but not close enough. So let's talk a little bit about future-wise. What do you do, you know, one of the things that we talk about here is that the spring semester now is kind of baked. I yes. mean, you know, it's baked in. We, not much is going to change between now and then. Yes. How do you plan for spring? How do you plan beyond spring? Not having any idea of what things are going to look like. 
So that, that's the subject of constant conversations, both at our college and within our district uh, headquarters. So we, in fact, had a, a cabinet meeting of the, of the, the chancellor's um, cabinet this morning, the, the, the college presidents, the vice chancellors, uh, are in the room and we're trying to anticipate what fall is going to look like. So spring, as you said, has been baked for some time and it's been baked because you need to tell uh, students what, uh, what your classes are going to be like so they can uh, sign up for them with their eyes wide open and your faculty needs to know what, what kind of environment they're going to be teaching in as well. Um, so spring has been baked, but fall is still open. And a lot of it goes into the, uh, the guessing of when a vaccine is going to be finally uh, distributed and uh, effectively distributed. Um, and there's a range of guesses in that cabinet meeting, uh, some more pessimistic about whether a vaccine will be uh, sufficiently effective and available by the fall semester that we don't have to worry about it and can bring all of our classes back on site. Um, to those, uh, I'm slightly more optimistic than that. I think that I think that most of the scientists uh, and health advisors uh, are pro uh, prognosticate that the vaccine will be effective uh, and available sometime in the spring semester, which means that fall should be pretty much ready to resume some level of normalcy. But what that level of normalcy looks like, what percentage of our classes are going to be back on site, is still uh, subject to some guesswork. And of course, um, having classes on site, and we do have some on site now, the classes that could not be offered strictly in an online environment. So our fire academy, for example, our dental hygiene program, our chemistry labs, uh, we offer, but we offer them with all kinds of uh, strict uh, social distancing protocols some screening mechanisms. Um, so th that, that puts an awful lot of speculation about how to, how to prepare for the fall semester. Let me ask one more question, Liz, and then I'll hand it over. Um, you're talking about planning. A big part of that planning is faculty, and you know this is a this is a question I I would like to go back in time and ask everyone, but I haven't had the chance. So I guess you're the the recipient of it, Lisa. I apologize ahead of time, but mm -hmm. but um, you know you've moved. Let's say you have an on ground faculty member that's now now moved to online. Yes probably going to be teaching online in spring, maybe yes. teaching online summer, fall. Do you sit down and go, okay, this is going to go on for a while. We re it, rather than just investing enough to get this faculty member to be prepared to teach online, we've got to now invest some dollars into the longevity of online delivery at this point, because this faculty member is probably going to go a little bit longer than they thought with online education. Do you, are you investing in the faculty end of this as it continues to unfold? It's a, it's a better question than, than uh, any answer that I could come up with. The, the short answer is yes, we have been doing a lot of investing in helping our faculty uh, learn how to pivot to an online environment. Um, and for some of our faculty, we've got great faculty and I rarely hear any complaints from them, but I know, um, that I, I know intuitively that a lot of our faculty have hated the experience of going to online education, that they went into teaching because they love that face-to-face -face encounter with students. That was my experience in teaching. Um, and uh, so they're kind of uh, gutsing their way through this period of time, but without the joy uh, of that of that face-to-face -face classroom environment. So I think a, lot, a large percentage of our faculty is looking for, can't wait for the experience of bringing their classes uh, back uh, on site. Um, and, um, but I also know that some of our faculty 
will actually enjoy the uh, online experience. Uh, and to, no matter what we end up doing in the fall semester, no matter how many, what percentage of our classes are, are returned to a, the, the, the prior world face-to-face uh, -face environment, we think that there are some changes that are likely to stay with us. All of us have learned to use uh, the Zoom uh, venue uh, and it's got its inconveniences and it's really draining, but it also has some uh, value that we uh, have learned about. So I think we're, we'll, see, we'll see some changes in the fall semester and we're investing in our faculty experience to, to help them not only manage through the current semester, but some of them I think will continue to teach either fully online or in a hybrid environment thereafter. Um, but I also recognize that most faculty, I think, just can't wait to be back face to face. Hey everyone, this is Joe just reminding you to check out our website at www.edupexperience.com where you can find and explore all of the content that we released under the EdUp Experience brand, including multiple podcast series, EdUp Elites, EdUp Embedded, and EdUp Experts. You can also suggest topics or guests for our podcast. Then head over to YouTube, check out our channel, The EdUp Experience, and you're going to find that my amazing co-host, Elizabeth Liba, has started a new web series called EdUp Unplugged, where she talks about racism in America with special guests coming on that web series. We've got a lot going on at The EdUp Experience. Again, check out our website at www.edupexperience.com. Now let's get back to our guest. Absolutely. Yeah, I was going to say, I have to agree as a faculty member, I love teaching face-to-face, -face, but there, there definitely are some things I enjoy teaching about teaching online as well in terms of the accessibility and my ability to, to touch and create bonds and, and create yes. experience with students that, that may not have access to or never perhaps have the opportunity to go to uh, classes face-to-face -face because of childcare or because of their work schedule or whatever the case may be. So it's definitely, it's a give and take kind of like a push and pull, I think for me when I teach online versus face-to-face. -face. You did touch on a really salient point that I think we haven't really discussed about, and this is something I've noticed as well from my own experience. I've been teaching online for like a decade and, and the same thing for in the classroom. And a lot of the times when a student is English as a second language, they are able to get the, the cues and be a little bit more effective in the face-to-face -face classroom because yes. they're, they're getting those visual cues. Yes. What do we do about, and this is a question, this is probably a selfish question because I have this question for myself as well, because I do see the same thing happens to me when I'm teaching uh, an online class. I do find that my students that are English as a second language, they just need more assistance because of the fact that they're not getting those visual cues. Is that something that you've talked to faculty about? Or what are some things that we can do to be more effective for our students that are English as a second language? Being in South Florida, a lot of the students here are either uh, Creole is their, is their first language, a lot of times Spanish is their first language, and they do struggle sometimes in the online classes because yes. of the fact that they don't have those visual cues. How do we, what do we do about that? So this is not a good answer to your question, because again, the question is better than any answer that I have. But one of the yeah. things that we're doing uh, in the near future is we, we've got a, a small, really nascent uh, uh, peer mentor program that we're uh. going, that we plan to expand. All, you know, a lot of the research indicates that 
uh, what I think we know intuitively, which is that the more contacts that a student has mm -hmm. with peers, the greater the likelihood that they're going to persist and succeed mm -hmm. in their in their classes. And, and the reason why I think it's fairly obvious, you learn from your peers, they help sure. you, they support you, they provide a network and you don't mm -hmm. feel so isolated. Mm -hmm. So we're gonna expand, we're taking some money that's been distributed through our district office um, with the blessing of our trustees and we're gonna expand that peer network. That It also has the incidental value of providing good on-campus jobs for some of our uh, advanced mm -hmm. students, uh, but their job is going to be solely to connect uh, with a cohort of mentees to whom they've been assigned. Wow. Uh, so it'll be some, some, somewhere in the vicinity of maybe 20 mentees, and their job is to check on them once a week, give them a phone call, and just ask what support they can uh, provide I them reference to. I love that idea. That was a great, I've, I've never heard, I've never seen that anywhere. So, I mean, I, I think that was a great, that was actually something you know, that's- it's been surprising that yeah. some of the resources that we've uh, offered to our students in the air, in the uh, arena, for example, of expanded financial aid are no matter how much we've tried to publicize it and inform students, they tell us we just didn't know about it. Mm -hmm. And so we think there's value in having a peer whose yeah. job it is to follow up and just make sure that they know about these resources. I love it. Have you heard of something like that before, Joe? I've never seen, I mean, Not I it. know that student support a lot of times reaches out, but it's it's someone, an administration, somebody on campus that I, I feel as though someone is their peer, they're going to relate to that person a lot. And they're, and they're going to be in touch with them on a weekly basis. So it's not just a, a one-off, you know, phone call you get from the school at one point, but it's just somebody that you can bank on reaching out to you once a week. To see oh. how, how's it going? How can I help you? I love Yeah, that. no, I think it's great. Yeah. What about, um, Luis, what, you know, we've talked to a number of uh, community college presidents when we're going back to the access issue, Wi-Fi being an issue uh, for a lot of households. Yes. yes. Have you extended Wi-Fi? Do you have Wi-Fi, you know, in your parking lots or buildings you know, where students can come in and out and do the work if they can't get it at home? We we do offer Wi-Fi in our park in a couple of our parking lots, and that was one of the uh, services we provided to students. It's not my favorite uh, way of providing access to Wi-Fi. Wi-Fi. So as I mentioned, we also open our library, uh, not round the clock, but with a, a good number of hours throughout the week, um, and uh, and on Saturdays, I believe, to uh, so that students, if they just want a safe, uh, nice environment to come in and study with plenty of social distancing and they get screened as they come in to make sure they're they're not infectious um that's that's another uh way for our students to be able to access wi-fi if they can if they either don't have it at home or they have it at home but they share it uh with other family members and so it becomes a little patchy yeah i mean it's it's still mind-blowing to me to think about that because i guess we take wi-fi for granted so easily Starbucks has Wi-Fi and Walmart has Wi-Fi and I have Wi-Fi and you guys have Wi-Fi and, and to not have Wi-Fi, it seems like how far our technology has advanced, but it seems almost unbelievable at, at some level that, that uh, Wi-Fi is not accessible, but it just simply isn't. And, and that's going to hinder. Even at, at our stage of life, we were talking uh, before the show, Joe, about how if your wife goes at, uh, goes out through the garage, it, it, it can interfere with your uh, with your own reception. When my wife is at home working, both on a Zoom call, we can it, it can interfere with the reception as well. So even in a fairly stable uh, economic environment, uh, Wi-Fi can be an issue, uh, but compounded, of course, for students who are 
in a household with maybe patchy Wi-Fi access and they're sharing it with several other siblings. Yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing. And uh, I was telling Luis Liz that my, my wife goes in and out of the garage and it goes ding, 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 garage door, which is just perfect for podcast episodes, right? To let, <laughs> yeah. uh, confer, confirm that I'm at home, uh, you know, doing this, but th- th- this has been pretty, uh, pretty informative. And, you know, I, I wonder, I just wonder, you, ha- you have community college students that are transient. Uh, in general, they're in, they're out, they're working, they're, they're, they're not, they're back and forth. The time to degree is already longer, you know, for community colleges across the country in general, because students go part-time primarily, Um, you know, it takes them longer to get through. How much longer is it going to take them to get through now? You just, you know, the stop in, stop outs. Are you looking at completion times on the back end saying, okay, we, we're really, you know, the stretch in this two year degree out, it's gonna be three and a half years by the time the student gets it done. You look at, do you look at that and then reverse engineer your processes? Is that a consideration right now? It is, although although uh, saying that uh, suggests that we're further along uh, in, the, in the discussion than we really are. We still have to sort of figure out uh, how this year of interrupted um, uh, service and learning is going to impact our students. We see some tangible evidence of the the fallout rates from this year. I I pointed to some of it in the enrollment patterns, uh, but I don't think we're seeing the full story yet. I think we're gonna find that a lot of our students, even those that have persisted, have re-enrolled, that there's going to be some consequences to either to how, what they've learned during the past year uh, or maybe uh, having failed a class or, or two along the way. I think the, the deep impact is still to be uh, fully witnessed. We haven't seen all of it yet. Uh, so, we're, so what to do with that information, how to help those students once we get this pandemic behind us is of course a big question, but, but also a part of the mix is how deep is the economic uh, damage uh, that's going to result? Because typically, as you know, and I'm sure you've had this talked about on your podcast, the, the, uh, the economy uh, tends to follow a certain cyclical pattern. Uh, and what happens is when we go into a recession, uh, the, the um, uh, students will return to the community colleges because they'll want to uh, hone their work skills to get better jobs uh, and the jobs are, are, are less available at the moment. But so, so there's a boom to community college enrollments. Uh, and I think that's what's going to happen once the vaccine is available and students are now able to take their classes face to face again. Uh, and there's a loss of jobs out there. So they're going to want to be back in school. Uh, but simultaneously, uh, funding for schools tends to be um, uh, eroded at that point uh, because the state is going to have some trouble with its, with its revenues and expenses. Uh, that's a very typical pattern, except that this time it's going to be, I think, a, a deeper, more pernicious uh, problem because of the depths of the economic damage. Yeah, good point. Liz, you want to want to ask him the final two? Absolutely. This has been very enlightening, and I loved some of the, the different services and some of the, the considerations you're making on your campus, because these are things that nationwide as we go into the next few months, a lot of schools are gonna need to be thinking about. So you gave us actually a lot of uh, different strategies that I hope that college leaders are are listening to and taking notes because uh, especially for our first gen students, we gotta think outside the box and be creative. So thank you so much for sharing 
and taking your time to do so because we know that you're really busy. So we want to just ask you our last couple questions to wrap up and be uh, respectful of your time. The first one being what you see as the future for higher education. And then you can answer these in whatever order you prefer. And then the other question would be just anything else that maybe we didn't talk about that you're doing there at Oxnard College that you want to just kind of toot your horn about and make sure that everybody knows uh, any new initiatives or anything that's coming on the horizon for you guys. Thank you uh, for those yeah. questions. And it's been a pleasure talking to both of you. Uh, I'll say, I'll start with the second que question first, because uh, I want to make sure not to forget about this. But you, as I mentioned uh, earlier, one of the reasons that I moved over to Oxnard College, by the way, I, I live about 10 minutes uh, from Moorpark College where I was. I, I own a home near the college. Uh, so I extended my commute, uh, although I'm working mostly from home these days, but I extended my commute from 10 minutes to about 40 minutes. And I went to a, a college that's got half the size, half the resources. Uh, but, but I did it because I have uh, a special connection with the students that Oxnard College serves. Um, and one of the things that I have learned about Oxnard College is that it has, it, its reputation uh, is not as strong as it ought to be sometimes because the college has been looked at through a prism of prejudice, uh, the, the, because of the socioeconomics that our students come from, sometimes people will look at it in a, in a lesser light. So one of my jobs, one of my challenges is to put the college in its proper light. And one small step that we've done toward that is we've just received word that two of our programs, our um, Fire Academy program, our dental hygiene program, are finalists for the uh, prestigious Bellwether Awards. Um, and it, those awards don't come with any money, so it's not that it's going to change our financial uh, coffers at all, but it's, a, it's the start to a recognition of the college's great work. Those particular programs would have qualified to be candidates for the, those awards anyway, but especially in the pandemic when they couldn't just move all online, they had to adopt and very quickly a very strict screening and social distancing uh, protocols. And, the, and all of their students completed those programs without any incidents of COVID exposure. Um, so it was, a, it was a unique story that we have to tell. Uh, and part of my reason for wanting to tell the story of Oxnard College in the most positive light that it deserves is because it reflects in the pride of our uh, employees, our faculty, our staff, and mostly our students. So that when they talk about, when they talk to prospective universities that they're transferring to or prospective careers, they, they will talk with pride about uh, having attended Oxnard College. So uh, that's part of the story of Oxnard College. And then the first question, uh, which goes to uh, what I see in the future of higher education. I've been thinking a lot about that because we're in the process of drafting our next educational master plan, which is a 10-year uh, document. So we've been trying to look out into the future and see um, what it is that, what changes we see coming about that we need to better prepare our college for to, in order for it to be uh, more, uh, uh, provide better support for our students. And here's some of the conclusions that we've, we've come up with. We know that it's, that this pandemic is going to affect um, some careers in ways that are not yet fully visible to us. Uh, and so we know that part of what we need to do is make sure that our students have some of the fundamental skills that employers are constantly asking about. They're called soft skills. I hate that term because I think, I think these are really the harder skills, but they're mm -hmm. the, the skills of uh, critical and independent thinking, of communicating well, both orally and in writing, of just getting along with other people. So the ability to collaborate and to be creative and problem solve. 
uh, all of those skills um, are going to be important in order to help our students pivot to the career uh, opportunities that exist for them. Um, but we also think that there, we, we took very seriously the, um, the moment uh, that Black Lives Matter brought to us, uh, the, what we've learned about the experience for so much of America, African-Americans. Um, and uh, we doubled down on our commitment to uh, pursue equity, to make sure that our curriculum uh, has uh, a, a strong component of, of social justice, uh, that our eyes are on equity, that we wanna make sure that all of our students do well and that none of our students are left behind. Um, and so we tried to build that into uh, our educational master plan so that our resources also go into uh, these and, and the, these um, uh, premises uh, and these commitments that it's not, that they're not just platitudes, uh, that we are more responsible environmental stewards uh, and, and, um, and that our students have practical experience in civic engagement because we recognize that preparing students, that our job in preparing students is not just to prepare them for good careers, although that's, that's our primary motivation, but that, that if our democratic republic is going to survive another 240 years, and there have been times in the last few years that where I've wondered whether we were actually going to make it, and sometimes I still do, that part of our job, therefore, is not only to model, but to teach the skills of civic engagement, to have help students become uh, better uh, advocates within their communities and, and within the, the Republic um, at large. So uh, those sound like a lot of platitudes, but we're trying to bring a really concrete focus to them. Yeah, well, we got to start somewhere. So yeah, for sure. Go ahead, Joe. No, the planning starts somewhere. The, I mean, it all does start somewhere. It sounds like you're looking into the future, which is admirable because I think there are still some not looking all the way down the line. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, it, the, the students' futures are on the line with our planning as, in, as higher ed faculty literally. and administrators. Yeah, literally. So we have a responsibility. And um, I can't think of a better person to lead Oxnard College into the future. Ladies and gentlemen, you've been listening to Luis Sanchez. He's president of Oxnard College, and he's been with us, and it's been such a pleasure, Luis. Thank you so much. Thank you both. It's been my pleasure. Hope you enjoyed that episode. To learn more about the EdUp Experience, please visit edupexperience.com and if you want to be in on the live recordings, please sign up for our email list. Go to edupexperience.com and sign up to be a subscriber. We'll let you know how you can listen in live and get the scoop before anyone else does. So please, as always, feel free to share this podcast, rate, review, and subscribe. We would really, really appreciate that. You've been listening to The EdUp Experience, where we make education your business with your hosts, Dr. Joe Salustio, Elizabeth Liva, and Elvin Freitas.